0: New York City headquarters. I'm Joanna Sharino.
1: In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal.
2: And from the Patron Hacienda in Jalisco, Mexico, I'm Adam Teeter. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. What's going on, guys?
1: It's an international pod. We don't it do these very often.
2: It's an international pod. I'm sitting here at the Hacienda. Well, actually, the Casona. Let's be clear. Very I'm exclusive. At the Hacienda. I also really want to
1: be very clear that I am pleased, but also. Kind of uh, depressed that you are in beautiful Jalisco and you're wasting your time doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's important. That's dedication, important. listeners. That's the Adam Teeter way. This is how I do. You know.
2: <laughs> also, because I think both of you are like, hey, you're gonna be there. Can you travel with all the audio equipment? Because it'd be really cool <laughs> if you <record laughs> from there.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was
2: like, I got you guys. I got you guys. <laughs> Next week will be the same. I'll be remote again. So you know. Oh From
0: man. from a different venue.
2: This is all we do here at my mm-hmm. yeah. parents travel. Uh well, it's you all know. you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm here uh, judging the, the Patron Perfectionists uh, cocktail competition, which is uh, 15, 15 or 20 bartenders from around the world. You win like your region, your country or your region of countries. So, like mm-hmm. smaller countries all go into one region. Like so Germany and Austria are combined uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark are combined. Um, and then you, if you won that national competition, you were, you were flown down here to the, to beautiful Mexico uh, to present your cocktail to myself, the master distiller and the winner from last year. So wow. <laughs> no, that is a lot of pressure.
1: <laughs> Yeah. A lot of pressure on you.
2: Yeah. It should be a lot of fun though. The the, the bartenders are really awesome to meet from all over the world um, and their perspectives and sort of like talking to them about what's happening in their regions is really cool. And mm-hmm. uh, they all came down here with like a the brand ambassador from their country as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like kind of then it becomes their coach, which is really interesting. I'd never, mm-hmm. other cocktail competitions I have, judge in the past wa- aren't like this so like basically what happens is if you win your country the brand ambassador literally becomes your coach and practices with you and so like Ooh. talking to the United States winner who's actually his name is Fabio and he's the head bartender at the Park Hyatt in Manhattan and he was saying that his uh, brand ambassador in New York City literally would come to comes to the Park Hyatt starting I guess it was like three months ago every single Monday and they would run his cocktail presentation every monday wow for like two hours it's like like a
0: cheer competition
2: yeah i mean it sounds like you know those competitions from
0: experience joanna no no absolutely not okay
2: she just watched cheer (laughs) on netflix okay
0: actually i watched um no what was that um movie back in the day bring it on (laughs) that's what i know
2: i just thought that like because you're such a drive to survive fan you're like obsessed with all of the competition (laughs) shows now on, on netflix
0: just drive to survive yeah Mm-hmm.
2: What a show! Anyways, what have you both been drinking?
0: Okay, I'm gonna go first. Okay, well, so this past weekend, which was Memorial mm-hmm. Memorial Day long weekend, um, actually met up with Adam at Lo- and some other folks at Long Island Bar and drank all the drinks there. Yes, um, which was a wonderful experience. Um, if you've never been, you should go. But I think the standout drink for me was the improved Pendennis cocktail cocktail. Oh, so yeah. good. improved Pendennis Club. Improved Pendennis. Club, Club, um, which was a gin-based cocktail with apricot, I assume liqueur, uh, lime juice, and Peychaud's bitters. Very, very good. It was my um, favorite. Yeah, so, so nice. good. Um, but yeah, and then otherwise, uh, I think that was pretty much a, pretty much the highlight of the past week. Um, what about you, Zach?
1: Well, I was uh, away on my own little trip to uh, Walla Walla right. over Memorial right. Day weekend. Uh, weather didn't cooperate but I uh, drank a lot of really nice wine which was great a um, couple of things that stood out had a an older vintage uh, 2014 uh, white from tranche uh, sellers out there uh, which is their they call it their pop Blanc so it's you know kind of modeled on a Chateauneuf de Pop Blanc uh, in this case I think it's mostly Grenache Blanc with some roussan and clarette, if I remember correctly and then uh, and with you know a, a 2014 so as long-time listeners know I'm quite enamored with older white wine so that was a lot of fun. And then uh, the other thing is I went to um, another winery, Double Back, uh, which has been around it for 15 or so years. It's uh, actually owned by former NFL quarterback Drew Bledsoe, who's from Walla Walla, and mm. his winemaker is another uh, Walla Walla, like, essentially lifelong resident. And they make really excellent wines, and they really – it's interesting. It's one of those things where that's happened in the wine world in a lot of different places that, like – maybe be worth talking about sometime or, or writing about or something where like you have all these labels that were started um, kind of at one era of wine in this case, kind of like the early double back wines, I think you would just would be sort of correctly described as like, you know, really full bodied and a lot of Oak and just kind of in that like mid two thousands Cabernet style. And uh, sort of <laughs> uh, without a whole lot of fanfare, like the style has definitely evolved. Like now their estate vineyards are all biodynamic. The winemaking is uh, like, they're still making, Cabernet Sauvignon like let's be clear but it's like this the elegance of the wines and the sort of subtlety of the wines has has been increased and and the sort of in your face nature of them has been decreased which I personally appreciate um but it's been funny to sort of see that happen and to wonder like you know for people who who kind of got into the wines in the early days are they like is that cool with them or do they still kind of pine for those uh you know sort of much more full-bodied intense styles that they maybe first got interested in so That was really cool, and then I actually got to go have a cocktail with Caitlin for our uh, anniversary, which was a rare treat, also in Walla Walla, at a really cool new place called Kinglet, which is um, in a historic building there that used to be a lumber mill. Uh, They actually share it with a winery, uh, the space, and then um, the chef is from Seattle, um, operates a couple restaurants in Seattle, and then opened out, out there. And uh, I had a cocktail called Session Forty One, which was a sort of a Scotch and and Drambui cocktail. So kind of like a play on a rusty nail,
0: rusty nail, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. But uh, really good and a nice kind of like we just went out for drinks and dessert, uh, which was great and uh, something we don't get to do very often. So uh, a nice treat there. How about you, Adam? I, I assume lots of tequila lately, but what else are you drinking? Well,
2: uh, yeah, so some some tequila lately, uh, <laughs> but uh, but only a little bit because I only I just got here last.
0: Currently, night. currently. Um,
2: but then over the weekend, yes, met up with Joanna and others at Long Island Bar. Um, and in addition to the Improved Penitas Club, I had the Gimlet for which Mister Toby Caccini is well known um, and has been on the Cocktail College podcast to talk about. And that was just an absolutely delicious cocktail. And then the other, the third cocktail I had um, was one that like Tim tells me is like the the secret cocktail everyone gets there. Like the the the, the the cocktail and writers and bartenders in the know, and that was the Boulevardier, uh, mm. which was really good. Uh, and then I had a really interesting experience. Wait, wait,
1: wait! Important, important for podcast continuity. Made with bourbon or rye?
2: I don't know. I didn't ask. Uh... But served up
0: rye, rye, rye.
2: Oh, served? Yeah, made with rye.
0: Mm-hmm. It was made with
2: rye and served up. Mm, funny
0: fact checking here. Yep, rye yeah, mm-hmm.
1: made with rye, the
2: way it should be made, and served up.
1: That's what um, I said. You told me it's supposed to be a bourbon cocktail. Did I? I thought i always said it was dry cocktail? No, I'll pull the audio. Maybe <laughs> You could be right. I don't like that <laughs> the, the, the o- receipts. Never lie. I don't like the <laughs> receipts. Uh,
2: and then I had a really interesting experience with some friends at at dinner one of the other nights. That I'm curious what you both think. So we went to this real, this new restaurant in Brooklyn that was amazing called Inga's Bar. Okay. And uh, I was asking the server about some of the wines. I'm like again, it's. It's gotten, you know, got a really great. It's gotten some great reviews and things like that. But like, just like we're seeing with most of these now upscale casual restaurants, like these sort of you know upscale taverns, whatever. Post COVID, there's no more psalms on the floor, right? So it's really like probably the manager does the buying or something like that, and the service staff is trained in wine. They know the list, but they don't know it super super well, right? And so we wanted, we knew we wanted to have like. Uh, Two bottles. We wanted a bottle of white to start and then a bottle of red. And I knew a bunch of the red producers, but I didn't know any of the whites. And I've been told that the list sort of can lean on the natty side, but that there was like some cleaner stuff. Uh, And So I asked between like a Chenin Blanc and I think a Chardonnay. And the server was like really... Very persuasive, like, oh, the Shannon's amazing. And I was like, okay, like, I'm, is it clean? I'm looking for fruit, not funk, et cetera. And he was like, oh, yeah, it's like one of our favorite wines here. And he brought the bottle and had already opened it. And mm. when he put the bottle on the, like, when he put the bottle on the table to serve it, I saw the importer and I was like, nope, I know this is really <laughs> supernatural. And it was, and like, we'd already gotten it. And it was basically like drinking cider. Which was fine. I mean, you know, you kept it. yeah, we kept it because I was like, at this point, it was had been opened. He poured it into our glasses, and I was like, "This is cider," um, and I was just like, "I don't, I'm not going to complain about it, right?" Like, it's been opened. It was a relatively affordable bottle. It was like fifty three bucks, so I didn't feel I didn't want to be that dude. Um, but then one of our friends was like, "Do you think there's like an article to be written about like if you see the importer, you know." And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, but I don't want to write it in the negative way. Like, if you see this importer, you also know. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting how, like, I, the second I saw the name, I knew that the book is just very, very, very funky natural, right? There's right. A, There are other natural wine importers in New York where I would have been – I sort of, oh, maybe this could be one of the wines that are more – that are natural but more – that are cleaner. I just knew the second I saw the name. I was like, Yep. This is going to be funky. Um, and I'm curious, like, what either of you would have done because I, I didn't want to be, like, the asshole to say to the server as well, like, oh, sorry, sorry. I, I actually see who this importer is, and I know that their book is really natural. So you might not think it is, but I know it's going to be, so let's just pass on this. Um, it was a very interesting conversation. It was a very interesting situation. But, yeah, then our friends were like, you guys should write an article. I was like, well, we do sort of about how you can you can buy based on the importer. But I don't know. Zach, what do you yeah, think? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: God, there's so many things here that I yeah. that stand out to me. The, the weirdest single thing in this is that this person brought you an open bottle of wine, and, and was, like, was you not know? odd. Yeah. Well, and it's like one thing. It's like a little bit one thing. Like if you're at a restaurant, like a Michelin star restaurant with with a sommelier team, and they're like, you order a 35 year old bottle of wine, and they're like, oh, we'll just proof it to make sure it's yeah. You know, they're fine. I mean, I. That that is a thing that happens, and it's a part of a certain kind of wine service. But for any other restaurant to be like, yeah, we're just gonna open, bring you this open bottle and pour it, like without even giving you the chance to. Because again, you could have been like, you know what, I actually don't want this, or like, you don't even right. have to get into like why. You could just be like, you know what, we talked about it after you walked away, and we actually decided we'd prefer the Chardonnay or whatever. Like, I'm yeah. sorry, but then I think like if this person like if you were like, hey, I don't want a funky wine, I want like a clean wine. And they're like, oh no, this is great, and they bring you it, and it's like totally not what you want, like i mean i get that it's always a little bit much to be the person who sends wine back but to me this is like an absolute clear-cut like time you should send a bottle back like yeah they they fucked up in so many different ways they gave you a bad recommendation they didn't give you uh you know a chance to like look at the bottle and make a decision they poured it for you like they poured for the whole table right away like didn't pour you a taste like the whole thing to me is like this is just bad service and maybe it comes back Mm -hmm. to where you started this conversation with which is like there isn't a wine service professional on the floor doing this it's just a server and again as a someone who started out or didn't even start out was spent some of their uh, restaurant career as a server. Like I understand that, that that's a lot of what happens in a lot of restaurants, but regardless of who is providing the service for you, there are some basic tenets, And one of them is like, you have to give someone a chance. Like if you're going to vociferously advocate for a wine and you're and someone has told you what they want, and you bring them something that does not meet what they want. That's on you, Like it's on the server, it's on the restaurant. Yeah, and if they right. can't get that shit together correctly, it's not on you as the customer to to eat it, like or drink it in this case, I guess. And I, I just to me, it's like, like, that. that's, and again, that's like the worst thing about this, right? It's like, now you've come away with this like bad experience that maybe you don't hold against the restaurant as a whole, but you're gonna be Maybe hesitant to go there again. Maybe hesitant to order from the list again. And like any restaurant, should not that should not be their desired outcome. And if the cost, if it means for them, you know, bringing you a second bottle like of something that you do want, like that's a very 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 small price to pay. Did the,
0: did did the, the server ask you if you liked it, Adam?
2: Uh, when he came back, like later, I was like, uh, it was definitely more on the funkier side. I was like, it tastes a lot more like cider than I would have mm-hmm. expected. And he was like. Oh yeah. That's why we love it. <laughs> know. Uh, so then I was just like, okay. I mean, also it's a new staff. It's a new restaurant. Yeah. So I didn't want to be like, okay, well let me now educate you on one. Why? What I had said to you is what we were looking for. And this is not what we were looking for. And then I saw <laughs> a really great red producer. And I was like, well, we're going to have this for the red. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was a totally different experience, but it is interesting. Cause like, I do think too, you, you are really noticing at least in New York. And I'm curious if, if the same is happening in Seattle, at these places where the the entrees are still quite not not super pricey but like it's priced to be a nicer night out Mm -hmm. i definitely do think you're feeling the absence of trained wine people on the floor like you really are like it's you're feeling it and i know we predicted this really early on in covid zach but like Mm -hmm. it's true like you you definitely definitely notice it and i you know it's it's I'm, there's definitely restaurants where there are people who still are really passionate about wine that are on the floor and that's amazing mm-hmm. and those people should take those passions and find you know careers on wine. but at other places I just I really do think that you're you're getting service that you like just really like restaurants and like cocktails and you know like food and may not be as into wine or as into wine as the people who are there buying the wine from them. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if you're gonna see, you know, even more, more of a decrease in wine sales than we are already seeing because of that.
1: Hmm. I, I, I have so many thoughts. I almost think we need to make this a separate episode. Yeah. But I do want to just add one piece here, which is I think it all is a part of this conversation. We've had a number of different ways and times on the podcast, but I think it comes back to this element of as demographic preference shifts or is shifting, and it's hard to say what is causing it, I do think that you're seeing, you know, the honest truth is that there might be a relatively small percentage of the people who walk through the door of of that restaurant or any given restaurant that we're describing, who are going to ne- require the a, a kind of wine service yeah. that someone who's well versed in wine, whether they're technically yeah. a sommelier or not, can provide. And it may just be that the sort of uh, calculation that these places are making is, you know. We're going to sell a lot of cocktails. We're going to sell mm-hmm. some beer. We're going to sell, some, you know, a decent amount of wine. But the, the vast majority of people who even come in and order wine are either going to be ordering, you know, they're going to – they're not going to be – not that they're not going to be discerning. But in other words, they're not going to ask the kind of questions wherein someone giving the wrong answer is going to be noticeable. I guess yep. I'll put it that way.
0: That's what I was going to say here. Like I feel like for most of the people who come co- go to that restaurant, he sells that wine. And they're like, this is great, mm. because this is probably what they wanted, or they think that's what they wanted, right. and and it's very popular, and you're going to love this. I'll open it before I even bring it to the table, because I know you're going to love it, because maybe the people, like you're saying, Zach, they're not asking the those types of questions, They're not, which isn't to say that their palate isn't discerning, but I think that they're going into a place like that, in a neighborhood like that, looking for a very specific thing, mm. or specific experience, and that doesn't necessarily require a wine professional.
2: Yeah. Very interesting. Well, now that we've completed our, concluded our mini podcast for today, (laughs) uh, let's move on to the actual subject, which is, is sake going to blow up? Uh, So, you know, we've all, I think, seen a lot more sake brands coming onto the market in recent years. And it feels like even more in recent months. And yeah. So the, the question we all sort of had when we were chatting about this episode was, do we think Saki is on the cusp of having a moment? And right. I think there's a lot of reasons why they that could be true, and a lot of reasons why that could be false. Uh, but to kick off first, like are either of you sake drinkers, sake aficionados, sake fans?
0: <laughs> I'm a sake fan, and I'm a sake drinker. I'm not an aficionado by any means. I think that my experiences with sake, though, typically happen. In a specific setting, uh, mm-hmm. which I'm guessing is true for many people who have sake, which is pairing it with Japanese food, maybe at a sushi restaurant or other Japanese cuisine. Outside of that, I I don't have too much sake.
1: Yeah, I think that's about an accurate summation of how I feel. Like I enjoy sake. I know a very, very, very small amount about it. Um, I like enough to kind of generally on a list, get to what I tend to prefer.
0: right? But
1: I also think that, you know, what Joanna said in terms of, well, where I encounter it is quite true. It's also one of these things where, like, I think my, one of the things I want to get to in this conversation I'm very curious about is, like, it suffers, I think, and it'd be interesting to see if this changes from a sort of, both a, both being kind of relegated to that, um, you know, that experience and occasion, you know, Japanese cuisine, sushi, et cetera, but also kind of being like hard – like I don't see a lot of like wine shops that have like any kind of sake selection or maybe they have a couple of bottles. You don't really see it in beer shops. Like it kind of – maybe you see it in a in certain kinds of, you know, larger package stores, you know, like Total Wine or BevMo or whatever probably carry some sake, I'm sure. But like it doesn't – there in this country, at least in my experience in most places, you don't see – uh, a lot of retail settings with a robust sake selection. So if you are even someone who's like, you know what? I want to have this at home, whatever cuisine I'm having. It's kind of actually surprisingly hard to go find a, a, a selection. At least it's been for me um, in Seattle to find a selection that isn't like, okay, here are Very five basic. bottles.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Adam? I mean, so this is
2: where I was like, <clears throat> I thought this was really interesting that you what you guys are bringing up is like, I like sake. But my question for Joanna is going to be like, do you understand sake? Because I feel like that for me is is something that's very challenging. Like mm-hmm. I I enjoy it. I think it depends on the setting, right? Which is something that I think plagues sake, right? It's the same mm-hmm. thing that potentially yeah. plagues like Greek wine. It's a weird example, but uh, you know, <laughs> people like you know, if you're not at a Greek restaurant, you're not ordering Greek wine, right? If people aren't at Japanese yeah. restaurants, sushi bars, whatever. Uh, they're not ordering sake. I enjoy having it though outside of the context when I have. It's very rare because, again, I do think you're both right. Like, you, there's very few places where you find a great selection to buy it, um, unless you know you're in a few specific neighborhoods in New York where there happens to be a sake specialty store. Right. Um, you know, if you're not, then yeah, you. And I think the person, and, and I think it suffers as well because I think a lot of the people doing the buying of sake also don't understand it that much, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because if you're, I mean, look, I think about even someone. I'd be curious. Obviously, he's sitting on the board right now, but even someone like Keith, right, who owned a wine shop for ten years, like I know he sold some sake, but I wonder how much he understood sake, right? Because it's a, it's just so different, and sure. I didn't, you know, all I know is like. Junmai Daijingo is what I should get for super polished, pure. Like, but I don't know the yeah. differences. Like, then there's the Junmai, then there's the Jingo, then there's the. And I think it's this world that is just so confusing, and as confusing as wine. And I'm already trying to understand wine, <laughs> so right, right. I think that for me is always going to be a barrier for it. Um, but I don't know, like, Joanna, do, do you like how how do you feel like your grasp is on sake.
0: No, I mean, I I think it's the same. Like, I have a very superficial understanding of sake, and like, yes, I know those b- very very basic differences that you mentioned, Adam. But, but yeah, and I, I mean, what I do know is that there's a lot of like knock rate sake out there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, that's kind of the extent of it, and I think that is probably the case for most consumers.
1: Yeah, well, I think you have like the the bucket of consumers who for whom it's like, oh, let's do sake bombs or let's have exactly. Like, you know, and I let's think have that's whatever. why. Yeah. yeah. And let's or let's have, you know, whatever the, the sort of draft or, you know, like the equivalent of a glass pour sake is when we're out for sushi. And then there's a smaller subset that are like kind of maybe it describes all of us that are like okay i'm gonna get a maybe we'll get a bottle of sake we're mm-hmm. getting something a little bit spendier but still we're we're looking at basically these really big categories that are like essentially have to do with how polished the rice is before it's um, fermented and then there's obviously all the other uh facets which go into like you know strains of rice go into like prefectures and where exactly the sake is made and the water source and the bre- individual breweries and like i know that that complexity exists i don't ask me to define any of it or explain any of it because i don't know it But it's that step, right, that step of getting people from maybe where we are to the next step, I think, feels incredibly challenging uh, for the people who are really into sake, who really do wish it was a bigger part of um, American consumption, or at least wasn't sort of put in one specific setting for almost everyone who drinks sake. And I think one of the fascinating things to compare to, you know, um, isn't so much like wine like Greek wine, but it's to look at, I think, two things that we've talked about in, in reference to this. One is cider. Um, which has sort of often been, doesn't have the issue of being confined to one specific uh, category of restaurant per se, but it does have the issue of being like, for to get into it, the complexity is kind of big and it doesn't necessarily feel like a drink you're going to have all that often unless you're really into it. And the other one is, I think, to look at something like sherry, like you and I talked about it relatively recently, Joanna, because one of the places you've seen sake pop up more and more is in cocktails. Yeah, cocktail and, menus. And it,
0: yeah.
1: and it uh, maybe can. Can you know sort of look at that model and say like okay maybe in in a restaurant that's going to feature a you know a you know that's not a a Japanese restaurant that's going to feature a lot of different kinds of cuisine or or just you know sort of different foods that's going to have a robust cocktail program well maybe the way to have sake be a part of that is to have it something that you can get you know sort of by the glass equivalent but also is part of the cocktail program to kind of make it fit into a larger beverage program.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it has an image problem. I think people have a very specific perception of sake and when mm-hmm. you're supposed to drink it. And then that, that's why I think it will, it will always have that barrier um, for, for getting to that next level and investing more time and money on sake. When you're like, why would I spend more money when I'm, you know, doing sake bombs or whatever other, you know, asinine things with it. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's really interesting, but why I thought this was, Something I wanted to discuss today was because we've been seeing brands trying to take sake to the next level in different forms, mm-hmm. right? So we recently had a tasting with a brand, and their sake is really meant to be like a sake for the club and bottle service. And I thought that was really interesting because... You know, will that work? Does that work for people? Do you really want sake? At- I don't go to the club, so I don't know. But do you really want a bottle of sake at the club? And then another form we've seen recently is like a sake spritz. So like a yeah. canned canned drink, um, which I tried yesterday, which was very delicious. Um, but again, that's where I'm like, will, will consumers really reach for this? Um, and I find it very interesting.
2: I mean, I think there are some some reasons to point that they could. What I found really interesting is when we were doing research on sake and we looked at, you know, trend data and sales data, et cetera, it over, it, it's much higher than categories like Mezcal in terms mm-hmm. of interest by consumers, sales by, con- which, which I think if you talk to like a bartender, et cetera, they would be shocked by, it, right? Cause Mezcal in certain bubbles is still so it, you know, feels like it's has this outsized influence, but I mean, even right now, if you look at trend data, sake has a much larger awareness and interest among American consumers than soju, which people think is going to be like the next really big spirit in the U.S. Just given the emergence of like K-pop and its popularity, and the Korean population continuing to grow, and Korean food in the U.S. sort of having a you know a growth across the country, right? Not just in sort of these these larger cities um, and Korean culture sort of having a moment in, in U.S. as well. Sake is still more popular in terms of, you know, what people are searching for and interested in, which is also really interesting, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So I think there are ways you, that it could have an entry point. But then, again, it's, it's almost like a preventative for itself, right? It's a lower alcohol drink. So for the club, right, right like if you're trying to get bang for your buck and you're buying a bottle of sake, because also these bottles, I think it's worth – mentioning are designed to look like high-end vodka and tequila bottles right they don't look like wine bottles um where like maybe then the club could get away with selling you a a little bit of a cheaper bottle of rose assuming you're going to buy like three or four bottles of i don't know let's say whispering angel right or domain or something as opposed to one bottle of vodka like they're trying to position this to be the substitute for vodka and Mm. The the alcohol is lower, so you're going to get a lot less bang for your buck as that consumer. Uh, it's also not as mixable, right? I mean, I think people right. will tell you that it is, but I really don't see people – mixing it with soda water and orange juice and grapefruit juice and cranberry juice like kind of again the, the things i think are the traditional mixtures that come out with the bottle service mm-hmm. um, that you would right so that means you have to assume your guests are willing to drink it straight which some people are right especially when we go to the the japanese restaurants but maybe not in a club setting um and then again with the with the spritz i see the idea but there's so many spritzes out there on the market at this point like you're gonna first have to do the education to explain why sake, Yep. and that's already a barrier. In you know, in addition to just standing out as a spritz, uh, you know, I'm sure it does make a more delicious spritz, but I just don't. Yeah, I just I think it's gonna be really tough. So I like I guess my my, my answer is I think I see why people think there's an opportunity because you look at the trend data and it feels like it, it should be. But then, when you think about it realistically, there's all these other reasons to stand in its way.
1: Yeah, I think I want to a, a couple things that that made me think about. One is an advantage maybe that sake has over in the especially in the canned or you know uh, RTD category is like it's treated like beer or wine by the government, and so it's not subject to the same taxation rate as some of these uh, you know sort of spirit based seltzers and spritzes are. But it does connote a level of sophistication. I mean, I think people do associate sake with a a sophisticated experience. When you think about how most of us view sushi and and a nice, you know, meal, it's definitely not something that you think of as like, you know, you don't think of it as cheap. Um, And so I think there's a way if you're positioning yourself in that kind of more premium category, maybe that um, having it be sake based uh, kind of just gives that connotation. And I think also the other piece of this is like, you know, there is this opportunity if 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 the proper kind of, yeah, uh, customer outreach and and education has happened. It's like so many trends in food right now are very um, advantageous for sake. Like you think about, you know, a lot of the places where, um, you know, like you see all the the popularity around, you know, God, the godforsaken tinned fish trend and like, um, you know, raw bars. Oh, that's a podcast upcoming. Yeah, well. (laughs) That's a podcast. But my hot take on all this is that all of these places open and they're like, oh, we have... Tin fish, or we have raw fish and all this with wine. And like, I actually think there's actually relatively little wine that pairs really well with those kinds of uh, foods. um Spoiler, most white wines don't, in my opinion, but sake does. I mean, like, Ooh, obviously,
2: this is, this, is a, this is an upcoming podcast. Okay.
1: Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> put, a, put a pin in it. We'll come back to it. Right. I, I think, like that. Attack. Point there. I think there's an opportunity for sake here to. Move into some of those spaces. Um, it's actually something that before the restaurants closed down, um, before the pandemic, in my restaurant company, we were talking a lot about you know the places that had a lot of uh, raw seafood. You know, did we need to really start looking at expanding our sake offerings, or or, add, or including them in the first place in some of the uh, locations because it seemed like such a natural fit, and that you know people were occasionally asking about it. But it was also one of those things where we knew that if we put it there it would do well. And then our one restaurant that had uh sort of an Asian that was that our, our executive chef who's um, of Japanese descent had a lot of kind of um, we had a fair bit of sake and we were noticing that, you know, sake sales were definitely trending up in that one spot, which obviously is not uh, it's not very good evidence for any kind of larger trend, but it was something we were noticing. We're like, okay, if we want to expand that, you know, then of course you reach the challenge of not just educating guests, but educating staff to come back to what we're talking about, you know, in the open. That, you know, sake has that other challenge, right, which is like it's so unfamiliar to most people or at least the complexities are that, you know, even more than wine, perhaps, you really need someone on hand who can explain it if you're going to offer more than a few bottles. And that's all – those are all big barriers, but they're not insurmountable barriers, I don't think.
0: Mm -hmm. I also wonder if they're, you know, speaking about the the clubs or bottle service sake in particular, Adam, you mentioned it being obviously lower ABV, 15% or Mm -hmm. so. Um, if they're trying to kind of capitalize on this lower ABV movement and maybe it'll take point. hold as a result,
2: yeah. I mean, I think that that is what they're trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. the and I think what they're gonna have to do to be successful, especially on this on the spritz side, is explain why their base not only creates lower ABV but then is also more delicious, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. it's like we're using sake not just because it's lower ABV. But because it's because of it's like especially depending on the the kind of sake you use, right? If you're using a junmai, junmai, jingo dai jingo, right? The, the, as that polish level increases and the sake becomes cleaner and purer, why that then is a much better base for us to layer flavor on top of, right? Um, which is really that's an interesting and compelling story. But for anyone who's ever built brands before, they will tell you that is a hard story to tell. That is a very cost prohibitive story. You need to have a budget and people to be out there. First of all, you're going to need brand ambassadors to be on the street, educating the, you know, restaurant and bar staff as to why they want to pick it up. You're then going to need a secondary campaign that's educating consumers to go in and ask for it. That that's, that's a, you know, a tough feat. Do I think that someone can do it? Sure. I mean, if, especially some of these larger companies see an opportunity, they will, maybe it is, you know, a company that already has some sort of tie to sake in the first place. Um, But then, yeah, I think, it could play very well into what we're seeing already happening in, in terms of, you know, drinks trends. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's interesting. I would love to, maybe, maybe one of these times we'll get a, we'll get some interesting sake to taste on the podcast on a Friday episode. Cause I, there's, there is so much out there. And I think, you know, the, the, the complexities are intriguing to me. I just kind of decided a long time ago, it's kind of like other beverage alcohol categories or beverage categories for me. Like wine is my area of true, like deep, you know, relatively deep knowledge and deep interest. And like, how many other drinks can i add to that yeah. maybe sake i don't know it would be cool someday i'll go to japan that might help
0: yep actually the the sake spritz that i had was very delicious huh. Very cool yeah. I want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: well <laughs> uh i'm gonna go drink some tequila cocktails now uh, i will Lucky. speak to you both on friday
0: talk to you then sounds
1: great